All right, hopefully you haven't closed your Bible yet because we'll be right in the next verse. John chapter 10. Just stealing a, a music sheet real quick. So during the Advent season, we were going through the I Am statements of Jesus. We went through Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. We went through Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. And then we talked and looked at Jesus saying, I am the true vine. And this is just a quick little recap because it's been a few weeks, and I wasn't really planning on and extending it through after Advent, but I thought, hey, each one of these statements is amazing. I'm learning new things, and I'm growing in my faith, and I'm growing in a deeper appreciation and love of the Lord. So when Jesus says this phrase, I am, I don't know if you remember, it's translated in the Greek as ego emi, which means I am, I am, which if you go to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what God reveals his name to as Moses when he appears to him in a burning bush, he says what? I am who I am. I am, I am. Ego, emi. So each one of these I am claims that Jesus makes, right off the bat, with the language he's using, he's claiming to be God. He's claiming the name Yahweh, the, the holy name of God, found in the Old Testament. And then after that, when he says, I am the bread of life or the, uh, the, the light of the world or the true vine, you also learn a bit about Jesus' nature, a characteristic and attribute of Jesus. So again, he's claiming divinity. He's claiming to be God. I am, I am. And it's, it's translated to, I am, I am the bread of life. I am, I am the light of the world. That's how you would read it. Jesus didn't have a stutter. He's making a point with the language he's using. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at yet another I am statement this morning. We're going to continue through this month, and we're going to finish all the I am statements. Um, I don't plan on going through I am the way, the truth, and the life, because I believe Paul preached on that fairly recently. Um, so I encourage you, if you haven't listened to the I am series, um, you can start listening to them and online, and you can listen to Paul's on I am the way, the truth, and the life um, so this morning, I'll be very honest with you, this is an I am statement that I've neglected. When I went through it with the youth group, I always paired it up with another I am statement because I'm like, I don't know how theologically deep or how much meat there is on the bone for this statement. Right, we're going to be looking at Jesus claiming to be the door. And I'm like, well, how complex, how, how deep is a door? You walk through it. You go in and out of a door. Right? It, it provides shelter, provides security, safety. We all have doors. We've been through doors before. As I'm studying this, and I'm reading different commentators and sermons, pastors have always done this separate. I've always lumped it into I am the good shepherd, but they teach it and preach it separately, and then the next week they finish it with I am the good shepherd. So this morning we'll do the same. We're going to be looking at John chapter 10. I'll read the first 10 verses. So if you have your Bibles, let's, let's read those together this morning. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." 
this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Verse 7, Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we know that it's true. We thank you, Lord, that you've revealed yourself in this way to us. So, Lord, I just pray that this morning you protect the words that come out of my mouth, that I stay in lines of your word, that I don't speak any heresy or, or preach anything that is against what you have said. Lord, I pray that I don't feel the need to add to what you have said because anything that I add makes it worse. Your word is powerful enough on its own. So, Lord, I pray that you give us ears to hear. I pray that we can set aside distractions that are in our hearts and our minds right now, that we can focus on your word, that we can be reminded of the love that we have in you and be reminded uh, again of, of what you've done for us. So, Jesus, we praise you together as a church body this morning. We love you and we thank you for loving us. In your name we pray, amen. Smooth. <laughs> so, as I mentioned, we're going to be continuing going through the I Am statements. In verses 7 and 9, you see Jesus repeat the same I Am statement twice. He says what? I am the door of the sheep. And before we actually get into that, there's a whole paragraph, those first six verses will really set up Jesus's I am claim and then his I am claim will also set up for next week's sermon when he reveals in verse 11 where he says I am the good shepherd so if you're a note taker and you have your notes in your bulletin you can follow along number one we're going to see in these first six verses that Jesus is starting to, to contrast two shepherds he talks of a true or a good shepherd and he talks of a false or a bad shepherd so, two shepherds. Now, for the nation of Israel, the Old Testament, God's revealed over and over again as being the shepherd. Israel is called his flock or the sheep of his pasture. You can find this imagery in a bunch of Psalms. I'm just going to fire them out. Psalm 23, the most probably famous one that we know, the Lord is my shepherd, right? Psalm 77, Psalm 79, Psalm 80, Psalm 95, Psalm 100, that's just a few. There's more. Ezekiel 34, the whole chapter, Isaiah 40, Micah 7, Jeremiah 31, Genesis 48. Some of the greatest characters or heroes of their faith from the Old Testament were also shepherds. You have Isaac, you have Abraham, Jacob, Moses, and the most famous, King David, called the shepherd king. So for Israel, they're familiar with the physical imagery that Jesus is using here. They're not shocked. They don't. Um, they're, they're, they would know what a sheepfold looks like. They would know what the door to the sheepfold would look like. They would even know the relationship or the nature between a shepherd and his sheep, right? They they have these things at the part of their culture. They see them visibly where they live, and they would have an understanding as also God being their shepherd. It's all over the Old Testament. So these things are not new to them. But in verse 6, at the end of that first paragraph, 
Jesus says, or the gospel says, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So what I want to do is I want to break down these first five verses, and we'll see again that Jesus is making a clear distinction. He's setting up a difference between what a good shepherd will look like and what a bad shepherd looks like. So letter A in your notes, we're going to see characteristics of a true shepherd. In verse 1, so chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. Now in Jesus' day, there was believed to be two different type of sheepfolds. There was believed to be a sheepfold that's in the village and a sheepfold that's out in the countryside. And there's differences between those two. And in these first five, six verses, Jesus is most likely talking about the sheepfold that you would see in the village or closer to the village. And the question would be, before we really get into it, is what is a sheepfold? Right? In America, modern day, we, this is language that we're not really familiar with. Sheepfold were enclosures with high stoned walls with usually thorns placed on top of them. It was like an ancient barbed wire security system. They didn't have a roof, nor were they covered. Um, the sheep were still vulnerable to, to wind and to rain and to, to all the weather, but they had a little bit of a protection because of the wall from the wind. The sheepfold served as a place of protection from the sheep, from dangerous predators, and from thieves and robbers. They had one opening or one large gate that was guarded by a gatekeeper that the shepherds would pay so that they can keep watch, that the gatekeeper keeps watch so the shepherds can sleep. And oftentimes these sheepfolds near the villages, they were big and they contained multiple flocks of sheep by multiple shepherds. So they would all go in and give the gatekeeper together, pay him for the night to watch their flock while they can go and rest. And one characteristic that we see from these verses of a true or a good shepherd is that true shepherds enter the sheepfold by the door. The gatekeeper opens the door, opens the gate, and allows that shepherd access. True shepherds enter into the sheepfold the only legitimate way to freely access, to freely get what is there, their sheep. And the gatekeeper knows the shepherds and grants them access to get their sheep. And I was just thinking, if you're driving past a house at night and you see someone with a ladder trying to climb into a window at a house, are you a little bit drawn to maybe call the cops or say, what are you doing? Right, it's a little weird because why? If you were the owner of a house, you wouldn't enter through your window. It's not like I'm like, hey guys, I'm leaving church, bye. And then you watch me walk out the field and I just jump through my window. That would be weird. I would go through the door. Why? Because that's the correct way to access the house, what, access what I own, which would be my house, where my possessions are. In the same way, true shepherds enter their fold, enter the sheepfold by the legitimate way, the door. It says in verses 3 and 4, to him the gatekeeper opens, that true shepherd. The sheep hear his voice, he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Another characteristic we see of a true shepherd is they have an intimate relationship with their flock. They have an intimate relationship with their flock. And let's just talk about this relationship between sheep and shepherd. I think we, we, we lose some of this in America because we don't have shepherds 
Or I, I've never seen a shepherd. So we read that what? That sheep hear their shepherd's voice. They recognize it. It says that they're called out by name and they come and they follow their master. They follow their shepherd. Back in Jesus' day, shepherds did not brand their sheep. They didn't like shave like their initials on the, on the fleece or, or find mud and like try to stain and, and dye their, their coat so they'd recognize them. They didn't do that. When they entered the sheepfold, which was intermixed with other sheep and other uh, flocks, the shepherd would what? He'd call out. He'd use his voice, and the sheep would hear the voice, recognize it, and come running to the shepherd. Sheep quickly become accustomed to their owner's particular tone, their voice, their inflections. They can distinguish it from another person. And sheep were so important for the shepherd's livelihood that they would have a strong, intimate, loving, caring relationship with the sheep, and they would even name the sheep of their flock just as if we would name our pets. Now, I know some people name their, their dog, dog, because they think it's funny. But in the same way that we would name our dog, maybe based on how they look or how they act, or maybe a, a name that, that they remind us of, a shepherd would name their sheep the same way. Whether they were stubborn or whether they, they had a weird-looking leg or something like that, they would name them individually and know them individually. And they would know them from the other flocks and the other sheep from the flock. They knew them personally. Another characteristic, that was the second one, a third one would be that the shepherd leads his flock. He leads the flock out of that sheepfold. He goes before them. So sheepfolds are not pretty places. There's a continual buildup of dirt, debris, and poop. They would get trampled and used so often that there's one description, one shepherd says that there's not even a single blade of grass that can survive the sheepfold and grow. It would be abusive for a shepherd to leave their flock there for a long time. A true shepherd wakes up early at the break of day to lead their sheep out of the fold and into fresh green lands where they can what? Eat, where they can get nourishment. They will not allow their flock to linger or to stay in that fold an hour longer than necessary. And as the shepherd calls his sheep to himself, what he does is before they go, he inspects them one at a time as they're leaving the fold. As they enter through the gate and as the gatekeeper allows the sheep out and the shepherd in, he inspects them one at a time using his rod. He puts his rod down in front of the sheep. The sheep stops. He lifts up the coat. He looks at the legs. He makes sure the sheep is okay. And then what? He leads them out. He makes sure that everything is good with his sheep. And during this time of inspection, it's a very close and intimate loving bond. It's a one-on-one time with sheep and shepherd. As the shepherd then leads the sheep out, he goes before them. He makes sure that the path they're traveling is safe, that they're not going to fall over a cliff, but he also makes sure that it's safe from predators. So three characteristics of a true or a good shepherd. They enter by the door, they have a relationship with their flock, and he goes before them. And as I mentioned earlier, Jesus in verse 11, is ultimately going to set himself up to be called, and he reveals himself as being the good shepherd. And we're going to look at that next week. But at the same time as we read attributes of a good shepherd, Jesus also reveals characteristics of a false shepherd. So letter B, characteristics of a false or a bad shepherd. Anyone that does not enter the sheepfold by the door isn't a true shepherd. 
in verse 1, Jesus would attribute these false shepherds as being thieves and being robbers because the gatekeeper won't let them in because they don't own the sheep. They're forced to find another way in. They try to climb over the walls or dig under the wall. Jesus calls them thieves because they try to take what's not theirs. He he calls them robbers because they're willing to kill. They're willing to use violence to get what they want. They have no care or concern for the sheep, but rather they want whatever the sheep has to offer selfishly, whether it's their meat, their wool, their milk. They enter into the fold unlawfully, illegally. Another characteristic of a false shepherd we see is that they have no control of the flock that isn't theirs. The sheep don't follow them. In verse 5, Jesus says, A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And as I was studying ancient Middle Eastern shepherding, modern-day Middle Eastern shepherding, there was a book in the church library that I found that was written by Philip Keller. The book was called A, a Shepherd Looks at the Good Shepherd and His Sheep. And I forgot it in my office. I was going to hold it up and, and show you it. But what he does is he's a shepherd, and he's going through John chapter 10 as a shepherd, and he's adding some more insights to maybe things that we would miss. So what a sheepfold looks like, there was some information I got from him there. The, the, the one-on-one contact where the shepherd puts his rod down to inspect each sheep, that was from the book as well. But in his book, he shares a story. There's a story of a shepherd who's giving tours, uh, really, of his farmland, of his facilities, and his sheep. And there's a whole tour guide, and, and all the people are watching, and the shepherd calls his sheep over to himself. He commands the sheep, and they come over. And all the kids and all the adults, they pet the sheep, they look at the sheep, And then the sheep wander off again. And then he says to them, I bet you guys cannot call my sheep over to you. And they say, oh, we could do it. And he gives them the right command to say. And one at a time, they try to call the sheep over, and the sheep don't budge. The sheep are not coming over. They're using the right command. They're saying the same exact thing as the shepherd, but the sheep aren't coming. Finally, after a few of them try, the shepherd then says his command. Immediately, the sheep come running to him. There's also another story which a preacher used in his sermon, and I tried to fact check it, and I couldn't find if it was true or not. But again, I think the the moral of the story is true. He said that a few years ago there was a lawsuit in Australia that a shepherd claimed that a neighbor or someone from the town stole one of his sheep. So they go and they bring it before the judge, and the judge listens to the evidence that the shepherd brings forth. He listens to to the defense of the accused, the person who's accused of stealing the sheep, and the judge isn't able to see who the true owner is based on the evidence. So finally, the judge says, bring the sheep in. So in the middle of the courtroom, they bring the sheep in, and he says to the accused, he says, go out in the hallway and call for your sheep. So the guy who is accused, he leaves the room, he goes out in the hallway, he calls for the sheep, the sheep doesn't budge. The guy comes back in. Now the shepherd, he says the same thing, go out in the hallway and call for your sheep. So he goes out in the hallway he goes down, he calls for a sheep. Immediately, the sheep goes running to the shepherd. Right? Case closed. The judge says, okay, that's your sheep. The sheep knows their shepherd's voice. They will not follow a stranger. Now, Jesus uses this imagery to make a point. But the crowd listening, and specifically the Pharisees, they're not getting it. They're not getting the spiritual connection to what Jesus is trying to say. Again, in verse 6, it says that they don't understand the image that Jesus is saying to them. So letter C, we see the blindness of the Pharisees. The blindness of the Pharisees. 
See, the spiritual meaning behind these verses are directly connected to what Jason read in John chapter 9. That's why I had him read the whole chapter, the whole story of the healing and the miracle of the blind beggar. In John 10, verse 1, we read it. Jesus starts off by saying what? Truly, truly, I say to you. And the you he's talking to are the Pharisees and also the the Jewish people that would be listening as well, but mainly to the Pharisees. He's depicting them as the false shepherds who are thieves and robbers when it comes to their spiritual leadership. They're stealing glory from God as well as robbing people from the gospel of Christ. Here Jesus is using this imagery to compare the abuse and the falseness of these spiritual leaders. A man was just healed A man, a member of their fold, a member of their flock, was just healed by Jesus. He was born blind from birth. And instead of rejoicing with their sheep, rejoicing with someone from their fold, they kick him out of the temple. They excommunicate him out. They remove him and they ban him from their fold. And probably feeling discouraged and feeling hopeless because he just got excommunicated by his people to the place that he worships his God, Jesus, it says, he, Jesus finds this man. I don't know if you caught that. Jesus finds this man, reveals himself to him as the Son of Man, as the Messiah, and the former blind beggar believes Jesus' words. He rejoices and he worships Jesus. And here's the contrast we have the Pharisees kicking out the sheep of their fold, the man that's under their authority, this blind man. He's under their leadership, and we see how, they treat, that, how he, they treat him because of their hatred and their spiritual blindness of Jesus. And when Jesus hears this, he finds the man, he seeks him out, and Jesus invites him to be a part of his fold, to be a part of his flock. Jesus accepts his worship. He believes in Jesus. Now, as we look through these first five verses of John, we can go a little bit deeper, and I want to just go a little deeper for a few minutes here. There is a, a more spiritual depth to what a sheepfold is. Right? The question would be, spiritually, what does the sheepfold represent? As we're reading about their sheep in there, and then the shepherd goes and calls sheep to him, right? what does the sheepfold represent? Some preachers believe that maybe it's heaven, but I don't agree with that, because it mentions that robbers and thieves can climb in, and you, that, I don't think it could be heaven if robbers and thieves can, can get, get into heaven another way. Right? Jesus is the only way. Some say that it's salvation. But it says that, one, there's already sheep that are there to begin with. And, and, and they're, they're there already. And that they're going to get called out of that fold. So I don't think it really is salvation. And the best explanation of this through just hours of just research and listening and reading different people's opinions and praying over it, I believe that it's the nation of Israel. More specifically, it's Judaism. The sheep that are in this fold are the Jewish people. Later, in verse 16, Jesus says, I have sheep that are not of this fold that I must also bring, and they will listen to my voice. And we see that Jesus, as the true shepherd, he's calling out to the flock of Judaism. He's calling out to those in Israel to what? To call them by name to come and to follow him. The other sheep that are not of this Jewish fold Right, as he says in verse 16, I have to go out and get the other sheep that are not of this fold, are the Gentiles. And Jesus says he'll bring them also to himself. 
And this sheepfold that's mentioned in verse 1, right, spiritually, it's a temporarily, temporary holding of the sheep that belong to God. And they're awaiting Jesus' calling out to follow their shepherd. Again, Jesus is equating the Pharisees to thieves, to robbers. They're not taking care of God's flock. They're destroying it because of their greed, their pride, their ego, their self-righteousness, their own morality. They're twisting God's word. And as Jesus alludes to in verse 10, they've come only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Right? And Jesus hasn't said it yet, but in verse 11, he's going to say, I am the good shepherd. But before we get there, we can't miss this I am statement. He says, number two on your notes, I am the door. So let's read the second section of what we read, verses 7 to 10. Again, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So because in those first five verses, because they didn't understand what Jesus was saying, the imagery he's using, Jesus is now using another shepherding example. He now calls himself the door, or some translations, the sheep gate. As I mentioned earlier, there were two types of sheepfolds. In those first couple of verses we read, Jesus is most likely alluding to the village sheepfolds, which are bigger, which hold more sheep, which have intermixed flocks. They have a hired hand to protect the sheep. There's a, a physical gate, a physical door, right, to protect things from getting in and sheep from coming out. But now I think Jesus is transitioning to another sheepfold, the ones that are in the countryside. There's no gatekeeper here. There's no hired hand at these sheep gate, or sheepfolds. The sheepfolds in the countryside were smaller, and they had one opening, no door, no gate. They had one opening, one way in, one way out. And oftentimes, a shepherd would put his flock, when he's in the countryside, he'd put his flock in this pen, in this protection, and what he would do is he would physically lay down in that opening to become a literal door. If anything or anyone tried to enter into this fold, they'd have to climb over the shepherd's body. They literally became a door to keep the predators out and to keep the sheep in. And as Jesus is now claiming to be that door, he's claiming to be as the shepherd that lays down in the doorway to protect his sheep, right, to keep out the predators. There are three specific, I think, spiritual truths that we can be encouraged by from this I am statement. So if you have your notes, letter A, we see the promise of salvation. In verse 9, Jesus will say, I am the door. If anybody enters by me, he will be saved. And I don't want you to miss this point. Jesus is saying, I am the only way into my sheepfold. There's not multiple ways to enter. And as Jesus says later in John's gospel, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What he's saying is no one enters his kingdom, no one enters the kingdom of heaven without me. And today, 2023, this can come across as a very offensive thing to say to somebody. Why? Because what you're claiming is there's only one way. There's not multiple truths, there's not multiple roads, there's not multiple ways, but rather what? One way, one truth, one 
door to go through, and it's Jesus Christ. Many religions or philosophies will teach that in the end it really doesn't matter because we're all going to get there. However you choose to live this life, whatever road you go down, it doesn't matter. They're going to all meet back together and you'll be good. And there are some, even some Christians that have accepted this. They believe that since God is love and God is merciful, which those are both biblically true, they neglect that God is judge and God is just, that sin demands punishment. And Christians who believe that everybody gets to, go, gets to go to heaven in the end, that denomination, that sect of Christians known as universalism, it's heretical. It's nowhere in God's word. It actually goes against what Jesus says. And Jesus is clear that he is the only way. The Bible says that what we're saved by his grace through faith in him. The kingdom of God is exclusive for those who belong to Christ. And it's not inclusive. The invitation may be inclusive for all to come and all to believe, but it doesn't mean everyone gets saved in the end. It's exclusive for those who have repented, who have turned away, and have what? Put their faith, hope, and trust in Christ as their Lord and their Savior. And because of that, people get offended. They can call us as Christians names like narrow-minded or bigots. They can hate us. Why? Because we're claiming what? There's a truth that doesn't matter what your truth is or my truth is, it's, it's God's word, it's his truth. And if anything you says contradicts that, you're wrong. As a Christian, that's what we believe, that the Bible has the final authority and say in our lives. If you want to find out if something is of God or from God, you check it with the lines of scripture. There's Mormons who believe in, uh, I'm forgetting it now, um, oh, um, revealed revelation or revelation from God. They believe that God can reveal things to them that are not in his word. And they put all their trust and authority in that. But one way you combat that is you look in the Old Testament and you read, how do you judge if a prophet is telling the truth? If they're in line with God's commands. So as Christians, it's not self-revelation that we receive from God, but it's his word that's the final authority in our life. If something is contradicting God's word, it's wrong. God's word is right. Jesus is making his truth claim here as being the only way, the only truth, the only door into the kingdom of heaven. Here again, we see the promise that believing in Jesus, turning to him, it says we will be saved. That's a promise. We will. Not that you might have a chance or maybe it's a, you know, it's a, it's a coin toss. No, it says you will be saved if you believe in Christ. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, and we'll look at it next week, the Bible's clear that you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose what God has given you. If you've come to Christ, you've been born again, there's nothing that can separate you or take you out of the fold of God. And we sang this song in tenderness, and I had a youth group kid. He asked me a really good question that got me thinking. Oftentimes we sing songs and, and then we're like, wait, what does it actually mean? Right? There's a lot of poetic imagery in songs and, and symbolism. Right? We sang this, the chorus of in tenderness. Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the love that bought me. Oh, the grace that brought me to the fold of God. Grace that brought me to the fold of God. One of the kids at youth group said, what's the fold of God? And I said, I don't I was like, uh, well, I think, you know, like, you know, he's got the whole world in his hands, and, and that's his fold, you're in his hands, you're in his, you're, you're his fold, which, yeah, that is true, but as I'm studying, right, this section of John chapter 10, it's those who are called, those who belong to Christ are part of his fold. 
we as his sheep, he's our shepherd, we belong to his flock, to his fold. Right? So that's why I chose to sing that song this morning. Now again, another thing, or I should say, as a true shepherd will lie down, will become the door for his sheep, they offer protection, security, comfort, and peace. If you think about it, the, sheep act, or the shepherd lays down on the ground, and he's at the same level as the sheep. And the sheep take great comfort in being close to their shepherd. It gives them extra peace, extra security. And in that same way, Jesus has offered to become our door by offering us salvation, freedom, and life for all those who enter through him. The second promise that we see, or the second thing that, that Jesus says, is we see a freedom of liberty. Point, uh, letter B, freedom of liberty. Verse 9 again, I am the door, whoever enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and will go out and find pasture. Now, I don't know if you caught that wording. It says he will go in and he will go out to find pasture. And again, this is not a verse that's talking about losing your salvation like, okay, one day you can go into the fold and one day you can, you can choose to leave the, and get out of the fold and one day you can do that. But rather what it's talking about is the freedom that we have in Christ. Just as the, the sheep are free with the shepherd leading them to leave that sheepfold, they don't stay in the sheepfold their whole lives. They're what? They're free to go into Rome in the green pastures with the shepherd overseeing them. The shepherd goes before them, makes sure they are safe, and the sheep have that freedom to what? To feed in the pasture, to go where they would like with the shepherd's protection. So, biblically speaking, in the Bible, as Christians, we're free from a lot of things. In Romans chapter 8, Paul would say that we're free from the curse of the law, from the condemnation, from the guilt that the law brings. In James, he says that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one aspect of it and fails in one point has become guilty of the whole law. And to be honest, we're all guilty of God's moral law. If you just look at yourself compared to the Ten Commandments, we fail miserably. And we see what? We're free from that curse, the burden of having to obey those laws, of, of trying to earn salvation through any sort of obedience or good or right behaviors before God. In Galatians 4, Paul would say that we're free from the rituals that God commanded of the Israelites. We're free from the power of sin, from death, from hell. Again, Galatians 5, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Not only use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He says, don't use your freedom in Christ to go and sin. Don't use your freedom in Christ for your own selfish, lustful behaviors. But he says what? Use your freedom through love to serve one another. A good and a loving shepherd, as I mentioned earlier, they will not leave their sheep longer than they need to in that sheepfold. They won't leave them there in the daytime. Why? Because the sun will cook them. They have no feeding. They can't get any nourishment in that fold. It's a temporary safe dwelling place for them at night, but in the day, they're what? They're free to wander and graze and get nourishment under the shepherd's protection and his leading and his watch. They get nourishment. They get hydration. I didn't know this, but uh, sheep hydrate by feeding on the dew on the grass. So that's why shepherds have to wake up early because if they miss the dew on the grass, the sheep can't get any sort of hydration. And they grow all by being watched carefully and lovingly by their shepherd. In the same way, our salvation is found through Jesus Christ who will never 
lose us. He'll lead us into life and bring us out to green pastures to enjoy our freedom in him. And as Christians, we can enjoy the things of this earth. We don't have to reject everything earthly and just focus on, okay, just Bible, church, Jesus. I, I, can't, even, I can't even look for a spouse. I don't, I, I don't forget kids. I can't even do that. I, I just got to focus on God's word and this and this. We're, we're free to enjoy the blessings that God gives us as long as they don't become the idol of our heart. Right? We're, we're free to enjoy a beautiful sunset. We're free to climb up a mountain and to look out and to see the beautiful creation that God has made. We're free to love one another, to serve one another. We're free to marry somebody. We're free to raise children to enjoy the blessings that God has given us in this earth. We're, we're free to enjoy those. And ultimately, they should point us to Christ. They should draw us closer to him. I don't know why, but I'm obsessed with sunsets and I'm obsessed with like mountain views, like going up a mountain and looking over at the view. I hate hiking and I hate being outside, but I love sunsets and I love getting up a mountain somehow. And I take pictures, right, working at Camp Spofford, they had these uh, beautiful sunsets that would set over the lake and it would just be these amazing colors of, of pink, of purple, of red. I mean, Stephanie can attest to it. Beautiful. And to just sit there for one moment, for me personally, and maybe not for you, maybe you're like, oh, that's nice, okay. But for me, I just sit there and I'm like, man, how beautiful is that? And if I think that's beautiful, how much more beautiful is heaven going to be? How much more beautiful is the Lord that he's given me this blessing on earth to see? Same thing with the mountaintop. When you look over and you see that view, how vast the earth is. It makes you feel small. But it's a, it's a good feeling because it remembers how big God is, that I'm small and he's big. Right? It leads me to God. We're free to enjoy these blessings. We're free to enjoy them as long as they don't become the idols in our heart. The last point, letter C, Jesus says or promises abundant life. In verse 10 he says, The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And oftentimes when thieves would try to go and climb over the walls and enter the sheepfold, the illegitimate, illegal way, they would try to get the sheep over to the wall and call them over, but the sheep won't follow them. Sometimes they might run away from them. So oftentimes these thieves and robbers, they would go and they would kill the sheep right there in the fold. They would chop it up, throw them over the wall, or whatever they wanted to use them for. Right? They had no regard for their care for their health they just wanted what they could get and we all know this and i'm not going to make this the whole point but sheep are not known for being smart animals they have no defense mechanism if you think of other animals like a porcupine has quills that's a that's a defense mechanism some butterflies when they spread their wings it looks like big eyeballs that scare predators off sheep don't have anything like that if a sheep was being attacked by a thief or a wild animal they act so weird sometimes where they'll either stay there and not move they might run away a little bit or there's a report that sometimes they put their heads together and form a circle and they stick their butt out towards the predator which i would agree, uh, argue that makes them even more vulnerable they're they're putting like their 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 butts towards them and they're not even looking that's like their heads in the sand la 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 if i can't see them they can't see me right so sheep don't have any defense mechanism they're totally reliant on the shepherd's protection. They're vulnerable. 
for false teachers, these Pharisees, what they're doing to God's flock, ultimately they're God's flock that they're watching over. They're stealing, they're killing, they're destroying. They're stealing glory from God, like I mentioned earlier. They're destroying the true gospel. They're combating against Jesus and his mission. As Jude would say in his letter, they're shepherds feeding themselves. They have no regard for sheep. They don't care about their sheep. All they care about is themselves and their own needs and their own desires and making sure they get fed while their sheep can go and starve. And that's not loving. And just a, a simple analogy I thought of is, uh, last night in particular, Naya woke up a few times crying because she's hungry. How unloving and how abusive and how bad would it be if Stephanie and I were like, ah, let, let her cry for the whole night, for all the hours. Yeah, we, we know she's hungry. We know she's hungry. We know we should be feeding her. But you know what? We got church tomorrow. We need our sleep. So let's put her in the other room and, and let's let her cry and be hungry while, while we feed ourselves, while we get our sleep. That would be abusive. That would not be loving. <laughs> that would not be loving. That would be selfish. And in the same way, that's how the Pharisees are treating their flock, right? They're selfish. They are only building themselves up as the superior. And we see Jesus' mission here in verse 10. It says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus has come to give eternal life, what? To all who believe in him. And this life is received the moment we enter through Christ. The moment we repent and turn from our sins, the Bible says we receive the Holy Spirit. We receive a new heart and a new nature that what? That makes us want to be like Jesus. That makes us fall in love with him even more. This life that Jesus gives us is abundant. It far exceeds what we need. It's a surplus of life. It's an overflowing that can never be exhausted. And it's not like Jesus is doing this. He's not saying, okay, here's my life, and okay, Linda, you get, uh, oh, that was too much. You get, uh, you get that. Okay, all right, Miriam, you get, uh, okay, that was, oh, that was good. Okay, okay, Stephanie, Gabby, you guys get, uh, like that. It's not like he's carefully and precisely measuring out the free life and the abundant life that he gives us. What does he say? It's abundant. It's overflowing. It's never ending. In Lamentations 3.23, this is a verse, if you don't have it memorized, very simple to memorize. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. His mercies are new each morning. Great is your faithfulness. We have Jesus giving us far more what we need. Abundant life. A love that never runs out. His mercy and grace that can never be exhausted. It's as if you're going to pour a cup, pour water into a cup, and you overflow the cup, and it's an, a continual overflowing of life. That's what Jesus is offering. That's what Jesus has brought us. Jesus, in his perfect, never-failing love, he came to earth, gave up his life, so that all who are in him, all who have believed and put their faith, trust, and hope in him can have life abundantly. All who belong to Jesus are his sheep, and the sheep of his pasture, they belong to him and have eternal life. And we can cling to that promise this morning. There might be some of us who maybe this has been the hardest week of our life. Maybe we're just in this continual pattern where we're not growing in our faith. 
Maybe we're, we're like, okay, what do I have to be thankful for? Well, we barely survived this week, so maybe I should. Maybe that's a thing. So I don't know, but it would be nice to have a little bit more money, or it'd be nice to have this or that, right? But let's just pause a second. Cling to the promise that we have in Christ. We have eternal life, eternal life with our Savior in heaven. He gives us abundant life that will never end. We get to worship Him forever and ever in heaven, in perfect relationship, in our new heavenly bodies. So if we have nothing to be thankful for, right? maybe your mind's going, I don't have anything to be thankful for on this earth. Think of the spiritual blessings we have in Christ, those inheritances that we've received in Jesus. We can cling to that promise when Jesus says, I am the door. If anybody enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in, and he'll go out, and he'll find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Praise Jesus for that. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you freely and willingly laid down your life for us. We thank you for that amazing love and that amazing grace. God, it's really easy to get distracted for things on earth. It's really easy to complain about the things we don't have. But Lord, I pray that this week you can encourage us. If there's anybody here that's feeling discouraged, feeling hopeless, feeling depressed, feeling sad, Lord, I pray that you encourage them and remind them of the rich inheritances that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. We thank you that you give us abundant life, that you don't give us just what we need to get by, but you give us what? An overflowing and an outpouring of your amazing love and grace. As we sing this last song, Lord, I pray that you stir our hearts to worship you. That as we praise and and we sing about the love that we have and the love that you've shown us, I pray that it will draw us closer to you. I pray that we leave here transformed and that we can be reminded of the love we have in Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for being our risen Savior. And in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.